We're going to be studying today a lesson on the kingdom of God. Last evening I announced that I, I have a theme for this meeting that will bind all of the sermons together. And I'm calling the theme, The Establishment and Increase of the Kingdom of God. So today we're going to talk about that subject proper. What is the Kingdom of God? And to introduce our study, we're going to look at the book of Acts, chapter 1. Just the first three verses here. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Luke says, The first account I composed, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is one of the most important subjects that a person could ever consider. I'm going to suggest that it is basically the underlying theme of the whole Bible. Now that's a somewhat controversial thing to say, and I mean by that simply that lots of people wouldn't agree with me. Maybe you don't agree with me right now. But uh, I hope that you'll consider the possibility of this proposition and think about it in light of what we talk about through the scripture tonight and over the course of the next few days. It may be controversial to make that one statement, but without controversy, we can see that the kingdom of God was important to Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God dominated his preaching. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus states explicitly that the very reason he was sent from the Father into the world was to preach the kingdom of God to the Jewish cities. There was certainly more to the mission of Christ than that, but that's what Jesus said was the cause that motivated the Father to send him down from heaven. And the chronicles of Jesus' preaching in all of the gospel accounts support this idea. The first sermon the Bible records him as having preached was about the kingdom of God and the demands the kingdom of God places on people. It was a very simple sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in the book of Acts, the Bible says that Jesus spent the last 40 days of his time on earth before returning to heaven speaking about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, Acts 1 and verse 3. Now, when we examine the detailed accounts of that preaching, we find that it consisted first of announcements that the kingdom was at hand or drawing near or coming soon. And then on one occasion, he says, the kingdom is in your midst, Luke chapter 17 and verse 21. And then that the kingdom has Come upon you, the very people to whom he was preaching, Matthew 12 and verse 24. The rest of his preaching explored and explained how the kingdom would relate to the Jewish people, what it would look like in the world, and what it would mean to be a part of it, how it would grow, and what its ultimate destiny would be 
in history. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus told his disciples that the key to enjoying the care and blessing of God, the beautiful relationship with God being our Father and us being his children, is to seek first his kingdom. That is to place the kingdom of God above all other interests in life. In Matthew 6 verse 10 and Luke 11 verse 4, Jesus taught that his disciples should open all of their prayers to God with this thought, your kingdom come. So even if one is not convinced that the kingdom of God is the theme of the whole Bible, it should be indisputable that the kingdom is a very important concept within the Bible and plays a central role in the Christian life and program. But what is the kingdom of God? The phrase, in some form or another, appears over a hundred times in the New Testament. We've already surveyed a few of those cases to see the lofty position they assign to the kingdom. Yet I feel confident that there are many people who consider themselves Christians, and yet they have no clear idea what this phrase actually means. First, it is important to note that there is no difference between the phrases the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes people try to make a distinction between those two concepts, but it is an artificial and man-made distinction that doesn't hold up to a consistent analysis of the scripture. Matthew, in his gospel, is the only one who uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. And you may know that the gospels of Mark and Luke tend often to record the same incidents and many of the same conversations recorded in the gospel of Matthew. Well, if you compare Matthew's use of the phrase kingdom of heaven to the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, you'll see that they use kingdom of God in the very same context. So they're synonymous ideas. It's almost certain that Matthew used that particular phrase because of his Jewish audience. You might know that even to this day, strict Jews will often avoid saying the word God for fear of taking God's name in vain. And that was the case even in the first century. So they would often substitute the word God with the word heaven and use it in the place of God, but to mean the very same thing. So the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same, and that's very important and helpful to know as we work through the biblical text to figure out what it means. Now I imagine that most modern readers, if they hear the phrase kingdom of heaven, think that it refers to heaven itself, to the place, wherever it is, where God lives. There's a colloquial expression that I'm sure most of us have heard, maybe a few people have used it, where we'll say that somebody was blown or knocked to kingdom come, and that means that he's dead, and he's gone to be in the next world with God. That's how people use the phrase, but that's never how the Bible uses the phrase. I am not aware of a single text in the New Testament where the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven refers merely to the place that we call heaven. 
Instead, the kingdom always has something to do with God's relationship with creation, especially with the earth and with humanity. We'll explain that more in just a moment. Now, some people reserve the phrase kingdom of God to refer to a period of time in the future, after Jesus comes again. And many of them argue that that will last for a definite period of 1,000 years, based on a certain passage in the book of Revelation. But we will see as we examine the scripture that that is not the way that the Bible writers use the phrase. And of course, we're most interested in what Jesus meant and what the prophets and the apostles meant by it. Kings and kingdoms are foreign concepts to modern Americans. Our very nation was born out of a rejection that kings are legitimate. And so we've lived all of our lives, as did our grandfathers and great-grandfathers, if we're longtime American citizens, uh, without kings. And we are no part of any kingdom in the classical sense of the term. In fact, in the modern world, a true kingdom is a very rare thing to find. And so to help moderns relate to this ancient but very biblical concept, preachers over the years have put together different formulas to define what exactly a kingdom is. You can look over here at the first panel on the board and you'll see some examples of these. One of the most popular, the furthest from me, in the Churches of Christ was put forth nearly 200 years ago by Alexander Campbell in his book, The Christian System. And it was perpetuated in the Jewel Miller film strips that many of you may be familiar with. Maybe some of you have used those in evangelism. And then it's been used countless times as a sermon outline. You might have preached this. I've preached it and I've heard it preached many times in my life. And this uh, idea, this formula says that a kingdom has a king, a constitution, subjects, laws, and a territory. Now I don't disagree with this model. I think that you can explain each of those words. and You probably have a pretty fair idea of what a kingdom is. But I want to suggest some modifications to the formula that I think will make it a little bit easier to remember and help us to better grasp the nuance in the word kingdom in the various places where it appears in the Bible. In our English Bibles, the word kingdom is a translation of the Greek word basileia or the Hebrew word malku. Now both of these words, although they come from two different languages, have the same basic range of meaning. They may refer to a rank, a rule, a realm, or a reign. Now I've established that each of those will start with the same letter, so it might be a little bit more easily memorized than Alexander Campbell's list, but I didn't just put it together this way for memorability. I think that this breakdown might expand the idea under consideration in a way that's very important. When we're reading the Bible, and we come across the word kingdom, particularly when it comes up in the phrase kingdom of God, it sometimes refers to a rank. That is, 
the dignity or authority or power that one has to exercise dominion over a place or over a people. We might say it this way. It is the authority to tell someone what to do and to expect that they will obey. This is a strange concept to Americans. Uh, we don't think anybody has that, even the people who we give it to. And so this is going to be difficult maybe for us to, to grasp. But in the ancient world, this was accepted. There were people who had a certain position, a certain dignity that was theirs somehow, and it gave them the right to tell other people what to do and expect that they would listen. We might call this the kingly position or the right to rule. In Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, Jesus told a parable about a nobleman who went to a distant country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now this is how the word kingdom is being used there. It's a reference to a practice under the old Roman imperial system in which a local ruler would journey to Rome in order to receive certification of his right to govern or his rank from the Caesar. It was considered that Caesar owned the whole world. And so if anybody wanted to govern a particular part of the world, he had to get that power given to him by the emperor. And when he came home with that authority, he could exercise power over the given territory that had been assigned to him. So in some contexts, the word kingdom means rank. The other three uses of the terms basileia or malku relate to this one. Sometimes they refer to a rule. That would be the practical exercise of authority or the exertion of dominion over subjugated people. So in this case, we're not talking about the ability to tell someone what to do, but the action of telling them what to do. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, the word kingdom is used synonymously with the idea of the will of a king being carried out by his subjects. Now in the poetic language of the Bible, the idea of certain persons being brought under the rule of a king is expressed in the language that those who are ruled are put under the feet of the ruler or made a footstool for his feet. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Cairo, Egypt and have Bible study with a young Muslim man there and he became a Christian and helped to establish a congregation that still meets there in Cairo. And on that trip, I had the chance to go visit the Egyptian museum and see some of the wonderful displays from the old uh, period of the pharaohs. And there in the museum, there is on display the footstool of one of the ancient pharaohs. And I was very struck by the fact that it is designed with a representation of the various people he conquered during his reign, holding up the board that he would rest his feet on. And I thought immediately of this expression that appears so many times in the Bible of something becoming a footstool for the feet of another. That means that he has conquered these people. He's subjugated them. They are now to be obedient to his will. I'm not sure if uh, the phrase might have its origin in that very piece of 
uh, furniture or something like it. But it's a common biblical expression and it's important to remember because it's going to come up again later in our study. Additionally, Basileia or Malku may refer to a realm. Uh, that would be something that has two ideas contained within it. First, when you talk about the realm of a king, you're talking about the region or the domain or territory that he governs. In Esther chapter 5 verse 6, the king of Persia offered Esther up to half of his kingdom. That is, he would give her half of the territories over which he ruled. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 8, Satan took Jesus up on a high mountain. And the Bible says he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. That is, the devil showed Jesus the vast territories of human rulers with all of their riches and resources. But second, when you talk about the realm of a king, you're talking about the people who inhabit that territory and who submit themselves to the king's authority. When God told Israel that they would be to him a kingdom, in Exodus chapter 19 verse 6, this was the meaning. They would be his people living in his world. Finally, the words Basileia and Malku may refer to a reign. That is, the duration or the period of time when a particular sovereign is in power. So we speak of the reign of King George I, which commenced with his coronation and concluded with his death. The reign of King George III commenced with his coronation and concluded when he went mentally insane. And so there are various things that might bring an end to a reign, but a reign has a beginning where the one receives the power and then an end when the power is taken away from him. Daniel 4 verse 34 speaks of a kingdom that is from generation to generation. That simply means a reign that once inaugurated will never end. So when we're reading the Bible and we come across the word kingdom, we even when we come across the phrases, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we need to stop and consider whether it is speaking of a rank or a rule or a realm or a reign or some combination of these because that's going to impact the meaning of the passage and how we should understand it. Now with this definition in mind, I want to explain to you briefly why I think that the kingdom of God, if we take it in this full-orbed sense, is properly the supreme overarching theme of the Bible. The single concept that binds the whole library of Scripture together. The, the story that connects all of the other stories into one great unit. So now we're going to go to the, the top panel there in the middle called the Bible story. The Bible story begins with the narrative of creation. That's the story of how the universe came into being in order for God to rule it and how it was judged at the first very good by its creator, Genesis 1 and verse 31. And he called it very good because everything was functioning according to his rule. He would speak and it was so and it was good. 
Quickly, the Bible proceeds to the narrative of corruption. The story of how the universe came to be as it now is with all of its flaws and imperfections because God's rule was abandoned by certain of his creatures. He spoke, but they did not do as he had commanded. From there, the Bible continues with the long narrative of correction. The story of how God moved and moves to right all of the wrongs that permeate the present order of things. And he's doing this by bringing back his wayward creatures into his good pleasure, restoring those who will submit back under his rule, back into his kingdom, and annihilating everything that is persistently unruly. And finally, the Bible completes concludes with a vision of completion, the future story of what the scripture calls the restoration of all things. When all things are made very good in God's sight again because they are once more and forever perfectly submitted to his rule. This is what John saw in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, or at least a glimpse, a vision, a, a foretaste of it. Now, within that story, at least as I've proposed its outline, what is often called the eternal, universal kingdom of God is front and center from beginning to end. That's why I would say it's the theme of the whole Bible. And within this concept, all of those four words, those nuanced words that we've just considered, uh, find their definition and their relationship in regard to God and how he deals with the universe. The rank of God, his right to rule, is in his very nature. Why should you listen if God speaks to you? Well, he was not voted into power. He did not win his power from some other force who he defeated. God has rank because of who he is. Psalm 93 and verse 1 says, The Lord is king. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Glory covers God like a garment and power is masterfully wielded in his hand like a weapon or a tool to accomplish whatever he purposes. Of course, the Lord is king because he is the Lord. The rule of God is the exertion or expression of his will. You can look now at the bottom middle column there. And uh, we'll note here that the will of God is presented in Scripture in three ways. There is God's perfect will. And this refers to the things that God infallibly brings to pass. You'll see this on display in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Then there is God's permissive will. In which he grants liberty to certain creatures to do even things that he finds distasteful or detestable. Maybe here also is where God appoints natural systems that function according to elementary principles and don't require God's constant direct management. And then we have God's preferred will 
in which he expresses and articulates what he would have his creatures do and how he would have them go and conduct themselves, but it might be obeyed or disobeyed. Now, the realm of God, that is the the rule of God, the realm of God is the entire universe, material and spiritual, visible and invisible, and all the creatures that dwell therein, the highest heaven to the lowest hell, the furthest planet in the outermost rim of the universe to the deepest oceanic abyss, angels and demons, mountains and trees, asteroid fields and black holes, tornadoes, volcanoes and viruses, every animal and every human being, there is nothing outside of the territory of God's rule. He is Lord over all. First Chronicles 29, 11-12 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. You exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Psalm 24, verse 1, very familiar words, we often sing them. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. And because God's rank is derived from his very nature, The reason he has authority and power is because he is who he is. Then his reign is like him, without beginning and without end. Psalm 145 verse 13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. However, in keeping with what we have previously observed about the second stage in the Bible story, the narrative of corruption, and what we have considered about God's permissive will that he has granted liberty to certain of his creatures, then we must note that the Bible teaches that there are some creatures living in God's universe, both the visible part and the invisible part, who don't do what he says. He is their king, but they do not submit to his rule. They are in rebellion against him. And because of that, they have created a rival kingdom in the midst of his realm. A kingdom that is called the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of Satan. And it is made up of certain men and certain angels who have rejected God's authority and brought disorder to God's creation. Now most of these concepts are explored throughout the Old Testament scripture. But this last point brings us to what the New Testament writers call the gospel of the kingdom of God. You'll find that expression in Luke chapter 16 and verse 16 as well as other places. In the gospel, the phrase 
the kingdom of God takes on a new shade of meaning. In fact, I do not know of a single case in New Testament scripture where this phrase speaks of the eternal and universal reign of God that we've just discussed. Rather, in the New Testament, the phrase with every part of its nuanced meaning is recast around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Properly speaking, in the New Testament, the kingdom of God is the gospel. The phrase really speaks of the work that God is doing in Jesus to put down the rebellion and to reclaim control of the universe by redeeming whatever will be redeemed and by destroying whatever will not. And everything we know and love about Jesus fits into that. The cross fits in there. The resurrection fits in there. The ministry and miracles and teaching of Jesus fit in there. The Holy Spirit and all of his work fits in there. The apostles fit in there. The Bible fits in there. The church fits in there. Let's take a moment to consider how. In the New Testament, in the gospel, Jesus is the king. He is declared in Revelation 19 and verse 16 to be king of kings and lord of lords, the supreme authority. And his rank, his right to rule was given to him by God the Father who even in a greater way than Caesar ever imagined really does own everything. In Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 Jesus said all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 27, the Apostle Paul says, God has made everything subject to him, that is to Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle tells us that while Jesus might have claimed this dignity by his nature, he did not. Instead, he humbled himself and he received this honor from God the Father who gave it because of Jesus' work to defeat sin and Satan and death and to redeem sinful mankind. Again, the apostle says in Philippians 2, 9-11, in reference to Jesus' submission to God even to the point of death on the cross, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the realm of King Jesus? Remember, it is both the territories and the subjects over which and whom one rules. Well, Jesus said that the territories given to him are heaven and earth. That's the whole universe. To use the language of the Apostle Paul, visible and invisible, Colossians 1, 16 through 20. And in those territories, and we'll have them sort of represented by this big circle here in the last column, in those territories, Jesus Christ rules over all who willfully submit to God. That includes the holy angels and the sainted dead. The Bible says that these are in the kingdom 
of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3, 22 and Luke 13, 28. Jesus also rules over all that submits to God without the exercise of personal will. That would include infants and innocent children and the lower creation like animals and the forces of nature. All of this is in the kingdom of Jesus Christ according to Matthew 19 verse 14 and Luke 8 verse 25. But the most striking and astonishing feature of the Bible story is that through the work of Jesus Christ a way has been made that rebellious creatures, particularly rebellious humans who broke off and joined up with the kingdom of Satan and by their rebellion are deserving of death and destruction can be redeemed back into God's rule and good favor. And that last class makes up what the Bible calls the church or the congregation of Jesus Christ. Acts 2, 41-47 and Colossians 1, 13-14. It's here that the words church and kingdom intersect and overlap. This intersection is prominent in Scripture. And you have probably heard that there is some identity between the church and the kingdom. If you've grown up in the church, if you've heard much gospel preaching, that's not a new statement for you. And if you've learned that already, you ought to be thankful for that because many people don't know it. And it causes them a great deal of confusion. But don't go too far with it yourself. Don't think that the word kingdom is just another word for church. Because that's flattening the matter out too much. And that will cause you a great deal of confusion. This is the primary concern of the Bible writers. They're not so interested in how Jesus rules over angels or the righteous dead, or infants, or lower creation. You might be curious about that, but if you have any questions, I can't answer them. Because while the Bible affirms it, to my knowledge, it doesn't really explore it or explain it. The major focus of Scripture is the redeeming reign of Jesus over sinners in the church. And since most of us are sinners, we ought to be mostly interested in that one as well. In fact, I think it works to say that in the gospel message, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, refers to the work of Christ to renovate this fallen system into harmony with that sublime and perfect one in which God dwells. The reign of Jesus is a work of conquest. It is something which began a long time ago and has continually progressed Lo, these many years, from Jerusalem into all Judea, into Samaria, and now it is reaching out into the uttermost parts of the earth, even right here, even to this moment, even to this place. And through Jesus, God is putting down the rebellion and restoring order to His eternal and universal kingdom until the day that restoration is complete.